Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and the author's books and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for over 2,000 years. I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy for CSA, and our topic this week is ancient philosophy. Now, we're highlighting ancient philosophy this week as it is one of the new courses that just launched at the beginning of December, along with Introduction to Moral Theology. At CatholicStudiesAcademy.com, we offer courses in theology and philosophy, and we currently offer four in theology and three in philosophy. One of those four that are in theology is an introduction to practical theology, which will be for those that are particularly in ministry in the work of evangelization or catechetics. By subscribing for less than a price of a cup of coffee a day, you can have access to not only the courses and extra content, but the professors and lecturers who wrote these courses. Not only do they have an expertise and professionalism in their discipline, but they also have a passion for teaching and want to guide you through a systematic study in theology and philosophy. Like I said in the beginning, I'm joined uh, by Dr. Smith. Uh, he is our lecturer in philosophy. And so, Dr. Smith, why don't you get us started today with our topic on ancient philosophy? Maybe give us kind of uh, uh, what is it? Maybe, uh, maybe we can go through some of the major players and kind of time period that we're talking about here. So, um, you know, there's a uh, phrase, the saying you get uh, so, sometimes will say, well, you know, uh, that's just ancient history. Right. Uh, and so there's a sometimes with, with things from antiquity, um, from the ancient world, we're talking about sort of, of course, Greece and Rome. Uh, so classical Greece, uh, the period of the uh, Roman Republic, the Roman Empire. Um, sometimes there's a, a sense that, you know, these things aren't really relevant to us. Um and you know that they uh, uh, don't don't really tell us anything about living in the 21st century. Yeah, uh, I think that that's you know I, I think that 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 view that 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 that, that opinion um, really is is an uninformed one, right? Uh, I think even a moderate exposure uh, to um, you know ancient history, ancient philosophy, um, uh, really um, exposes that as a kind of a superficial opinion. Uh, the writers of antiquity um, in the, you know, in ancient Greece uh, and ancient Rome uh, had profound insights, profound insights that uh, into what it meant to be a human being, uh, and uh, profound insights into ideas about justice mm -hmm. um, that have impacted uh, us and the world all around us, um, and and insights that I think have a kind of a depth and a permanence that. Um, um, that justifies the fact that, that educated men and educated women have returned to these things over and over again. That is, these are resources of inspiration, of illumination, um, that uh, that really have a kind of permanent value. Um, you know, uh, people from different times and different places have just come back to them over and over again to be uh, enriched. Yeah, and and I think it's important to understand that it's not the study of just old ideas so that we can avoid repeating them or merely approaching ancient philosophy from a historical context as it's good to know what's come before us. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I sure. think, I think even I remember in college, the two guys I lived with, they both took a, a introduction to philosophy course in, in right. some secular university, uh, you know, and they started, I think in, you know, the, the 18th century, um, right. you know, so, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, just completely ignored, you know, right, but it right. still has, it is, still has so yeah. much value uh, today. Well, you know, and one, one of the real threats of that is that it, you know, there, there is a, um, uh, C.S. Lewis points this out, there is a tyranny of the present 
that affects the the human mind and uh, the human spirit that really you have to kind of push against in a, a fairly um, aggressive way. Um, you know, we live in a world that's dominated by um, media technology, computer technology, uh, science, um, assumptions about democracy, fairness, and equality, mm -hmm. some of which are sound, some of which are not. Um, it's important for us, I think, to step out of that time period as much as we can uh, and to allow ourselves uh, to be exposed to thought, rigorous thought, uh, from other times, other places, um, places where people were maybe closer to nature, uh, places in which there was a stronger sense of uh, tradition uh, and of the interaction between the natural and the supernatural, uh, those sorts of things. Um, I think that's very useful for us uh, and enriching in terms of our perspective on ourselves and the world around us. Yeah, absolutely. Where did it Where did it come from? Like, what was the kind of the springboard from which, you know, uh, these these ancient philosophers? And I mean, we're talking, you know, about some some great philosophers. And I mean, sure. like in a row, boom, boom, boom. You have That's these, right. you have these great philosophers just kind of, you know, what 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 was the springboard that kind of brought them about? Okay, well, so if you think about uh, our time period here a little bit, this will help. So uh, there's some, you know, periodization is always a matter of dispute among scholars. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, roughly speaking, you can talk about <clears throat> uh, ancient philosophy is running between either, say, the 6th or 5th century B.C. Mm -hmm. and the 4th century A.D. Uh, I think of Augustine as the last um, uh, ancient uh, philosopher uh, some some people would dispute that. Often he's put in medieval philosophy. I think he's much better suited uh, as sort of the the end of uh, ancient philosophy. But it's roughly a thousand years um, uh, period, and uh, and really grows out of the world of the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, you know, there were were a group of um, philosophers who began to, um, um, or a, a group of thinkers and writers who began to do something like philosophy. Very often we call them the pre-Socratic philosophers. Um, they were op uh, they were active uh, prior to the fifth century. Um, you might think of philosophers like Heraclitus, uh, Parmenides, etc. Very often our <clears throat> knowledge of these philosophers uh, is very fragmentary. But the, all we really have in terms of their writings are fragments. Uh, we don't have full treatises, things of that nature. Probably the most extensive that we have is is from Parmenides. Um, these philosophers, these these thinkers, are really getting philosophy going, but by the very fact that they're they're labeled as pre-Socratics yeah. uh, indicates that you know for for a lot of scholars, and I think that this is fair. Uh, again, this is open to dispute, but for a lot of scholars, you know, we really think of Socrates as uh, the founder, the father of uh, Western philosophy. So what's really interesting, Jason, is that in the fifth century BC, right? So you say fifth century before Christ. This is in the 400s, right, uh, before Christ. Um, you have a culture, and I won't go too far into all of the history of it, but you have a, a Greek culture that is growing up uh, within what we would con consider mainland Greece, uh, so around Athens, down into the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula, in the islands between modern-day Turkey and Greece, and then on the west coast of Turkey, okay. right? So... Um, uh, the uh, that's really that 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 Hellenic world. It also, I'm sorry, that Greek world. It also kind of goes over to Sicily and parts of southern Italy. Um, so that the you know the Greeks were uh, a very active people. Um, the fifth century is a t is a period of real uh, change, though, uh, within Greek culture. Prior to the fifth century, you know, uh, w 
uh, historians call it the archaic period. Uh-huh. Uh, and this would be the kind of period that's expressed in the Homeric poems, right? So oh, if you've ever okay, read okay. The, yeah, the Odyssey, yeah. right? So here you're thinking of kind of almost kind of a warrior ethos, um, uh, uh, a very aristocratic uh, kind of, of setup where you have sort of a, a lord uh, with his warrior band, um, who sort of protect an area, give it law, you know, justice of that sort, also uh, are engaged in, in war and conquest, very often seeking glory. Um, that's very representative of the Homer, uh, represented by the Homeric uh, literature. But there's a change, right, as uh, Greece, as the city-states solidify, there's a transition, especially in Athens, towards a more democratic culture. Um, and this is uh, really starts happening in the fifth century, uh, there's a number of, of historical reasons I won't go into that, uh, but um, uh, the shift is really important um, uh-huh. because it introduces a new set of values. So if you think of ancient Athens and the and the and the Homeric literature as an expression of traditional Greek values, uh-huh. right? Uh, there's a strong sense of personal honor, a strong sense of kind of the say the warrior ethos, a strong sense of the importance of uh, family. Uh, if you were to read in the um, uh, the Iliad, or sorry, the Odyssey, right? Uh, one of the central figures in the Odyssey is uh, um, uh, Penelope, right? And and uh, sort of her um, embodiment of uh, female virtue, uh, that sort of thing. So all of that sort of speaks to, as I say, traditional Greek uh, values. Well, in the fifth century, that's all starting to change, uh, and a lot of that has to do with the change towards democracy. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, what happens, uh, again, I don't want to go too far into the details here, but in a democracy, right, power and privilege um, really flows to those who can control the assembly, right? Okay. So um, if you are an effective speaker, an effective, uh, uh, somebody who's effective at persuading the assembly, right, um, then that gives you effective power. Prior to that, you know, a lot of power really was based on military prowess. Uh-huh. Uh, the shifts, that means so that's in an aristocratic setting, that shifts in the democratic setting to where um, there's a, uh, what really matters is the power of speech and the power of persuasion. Uh, and so wherever there's uh, you know that kind of change in people, so aspiring young men of Athens wanted to learn how to be persuasive so that they could wield power within the assembly uh, and so wherever there's that kind of demand, of course, you're going to get some supply. <laughs> and uh, there was a group of teachers called the Sophist. Yeah, right, yeah, who came yeah. To situation. And what the Sophist are is they're really masters of rhetoric. And our listeners might be surprised to know that they were also philosophical relativists. Uh, we tend to think of relativism as a modern world uh, phenomenon, but it actually goes all the way back uh, to ancient Greece. Interesting. So you're telling me there was a time where there was uh, great cultural changes uh, there was prevalent relativism, and uh, uh, you had the and and you know there were some people that were trying to say, well, maybe there's an alternative way of life. Oh, right. That sounds really interesting. Wow, it sounds really familiar. Yeah, ancient philosophy sounds so you know, very relevant. You know, uh, yeah, when you yeah, when so you look you at it that go, way. Yeah, if you think of the uh, of 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 classical education. Uh, as it was then, it was, it was it was summarized in the Padea, which emphasized uh, literature uh, and the memorization of literature, which really sort of meant, was meant to embody traditional values and inspire young people to follow those, those values. Right, um, that kind of um, 
that kind of education, you find this kind of this form of education in places like ancient China uh, and Japan and so forth uh, as well. But that kind of education works very well in a homogeneous uh, society, a society and a culture that's relatively stable, right? Yeah. But once there, once you start to get sort of um, more of a, a, a mixture of different ideas uh-huh. and challenges and also some instability, right, then that kind of education becomes less uh, um, less persuasive, less powerful, right? Um, and so uh, uh, I, I think, you know, what some of the philosophers ended up wanting to do, right, is to, to give a groundwork, a foundation to uh, values, to a Greek worldview, um, a traditional Greek worldview uh, that wasn't based just on tradition, right, and literature, right? Um, not that there's anything wrong with the literature, of course. It's uh, <laughs> wonderful. But um, w- what was needed was something stronger than uh, so sort of like, well, these are the stories that we have handed down and these things embody, you know, uh, Greek values. There would, something strong was needed because the sophists were very clever. They were very interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the most important uh, sophists was a sophist named uh, Protagoras. Uh, he's very famous uh, for the, the claim that man is the measure of all things, huh. of things that are that they are and of things that are not that they are not. So if you think about that for just a minute, man is the measure. right? Yeah. So. Um, what Pythagoras meant is that it's impossible for human reason, uh, for human inquiry to ever go beyond um, the appearances. Right. Um, so what he says is, as things appear to a man, so they are. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds <laughs> right. very, uh, gosh, right. it's almost, it could almost be a new idea. It's interesting, you know, I mean, those are literally his words, right? So uh, as things appear to a man, so they are. Um, So what appears just to you, what appears good to you, what appears beautiful to you uh, is beautiful, is just, is good. Now, this is very important to the the sophist because the sophists were masters of appearance. Um, They could manipulate the way things appeared through their words, Right. So uh, with the skill of rhetoric, they could they could persuade people. They could make certain things appear to be beautiful and good. And you might say, well, are they really beautiful and good? And, and the sophist response is, well, it just depends on how it appears. Right? Yeah, it, it as far matter. as yeah. there is no such thing as just in itself. There's only uh, what appears just to Jason, what appears just uh, to someone else. And those things may differ. And, and really, you know, as far as the sophists were concerned, they didn't really care uh, one way or the other, um, they were just teaching you how to make anything appear good. Yeah, that, I think that's the, one of the most interesting things about the sophists. I remember when I learned that, I was like, "Wow, these guys just—they thought of it almost as like a, a game. Like they didn't have any really—they didn't have any skin in the game one way or the other. But they're well, they, I, what I think, they wanted to do was be persuasive as to whatever they want, who whatever audience they had. You know, I mean, that's just something evil about that almost. You know. <laughs> Well, it wasn't just a game, Jason. It was a business. Oh, it's a business. Right? I mean, okay, this, yeah. this is right. This is uh, this is how they made their living. Oh, yeah. Right, and people willing to, uh, you know, uh, you know, as I say, the aspiring young men of Athens were willing to pay, and usually came from families that were willing to pay, uh, uh, pay for this kind of thing. This is one of the reasons in the early dialogues, early Platonic dialogues, Socrates brings up this matter of receiving payment. Uh, on uh, on several uh, uh, different occasions, but I think in a lot of ways it's fair to see the the work of Socrates and Plato as a response, right, uh, yeah. to this relativism. Um, I'm just going to talk about them together, but 
that sort of platonic uh, uh, initiation of philosophy, you could say. Um, you know, it, its high point in a lot of ways is the theory of the forms, right? Um, which in which you know so Plato tries to come up with a way of talking about justice in itself. So you see how important this is if you're opposing relativism, right? Yeah. If you're opposing uh, 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 sophistry, you know, the, the sophist says there's just the appearance of justice. Plato wants to say, no, the wise man is someone who can understand justice in itself, not as it appears to Greeks or Persians, not as it appears to Jason or Ben, but as it is in itself. Oh, that's so, yeah, and that's so important. And I think, you know, even today you, you hear people talk about, uh, you know, it's almost like modern sophistry, you know, where they talk, you know, or at least in politics, you know, where they talk about, well, you know, got to control the narrative, you know, kind of, you know, whoever <laughs> controls the narrative has the power, sure. you know, I mean, it's, right. it's just, it's an ancient, it's an ancient idea, you know, that they're just yeah, recycling. This, 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 yeah, this division between uh, appearances and reality, right? Yeah. I mean, it goes all the way back you know, to the fifth century and it's still with us. This is a permanent feature, I think, really, of uh, of the human experience, of human culture, uh, uh, of the uh, human condition. Um, you don't want to be on the side, right, that says it's all appearances, right? Right. <laughs> uh, uh, you think about, you know, fam uh, our listeners might be familiar with the famous allegory of the cave. Yeah. You know, um, in the allegory of the cave, you know, Plato's talking about those who those who uh, are uh, who live according to and then judge according to shadows, right? Appearances. And the people, the puppeteers are really the politicians and the sophists, right? Those are the people who hold up the models that create the images by which we live in the city, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and manipulate our lives in that way. Um, and, and Plato's saying, look, 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 guys, there's a reality outside of this cave, right? You're living in this cave. You need to get to uh, what is... Um, to, to what is to you know just in itself yeah the reality uh, of the thing that's important that's right that's right yeah <laughs> now of course there's different ways to think about how you get to the thing in itself right, right? how you get to reality uh plato you know very famously uh, as a indicator earlier comes up with a theory called the theory of the forms i won't go into all of the details of that here but i just want to kind of give the big picture but you know, he thought of the, uh, the this idea that that there are forms. A form you could think of as a standard or a paradigm, an idea or a definition, maybe even. Okay, um, uh, a form that is is a definition. So, what is a human being? Right? Mm -hmm. What is man? Um, that in order or what is justice? Right? There's a form, a definition of justice. That thing, um, that that definition is justice in itself, and very importantly. It has to be uh, absolute, right? That is, yeah. it has to be universal and unchanging. That way I can apply it in every time, in every case, uh, and know that I am thinking about a given law, thinking about a given custom, thinking about a, an action uh, in a way that is informed by justice itself, right? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, the you know when you look at... Uh, Plato's theory of the forms, or even, you know, later what comes out of Aristotle, mm -hmm. when you look at it in response to this relativistic, you know, sophistry of, of appearance, mm -hmm. you know, appearances are reality, like that's, you know, it, it, A, it makes so much more sense, but I think it also points to, again, and we could see how, especially how uh, Catholics or Christians pick this up later is, you know, the idea sure. that, that, that reality is important. And real mm. there, there's a reality that sits outside of ourselves that we must mm. that we must discover. And you know, um, 
you know, for, for, for Plato, that was, you know, experiencing the particulars. Uh, um, but, but, but having, you know, through the census, you know, having access to those, uh, those universals, you know, ha- yeah, understanding justice in mm-hmm. that way. And, uh, the, when the you think reality. about our recent, uh, recent cultural change, uh, with respect to, to marriage, there was a lot of discussion and debate about sort of the definition of marriage. Uh, and as, as I was listening to that debate and, and reading about it, you know, I kept thinking about Plato, right? Like, <laughs> you know, th- this is the very kind of thing Plato would have been interested in, right? Because, you know, the, the debate kind of went around the idea, oh, there's a permanent idea of marriage. Yeah. And then the other side was saying, no, it's actually much more fluid than that. It changes a lot. So what we have there really is a, is a debate between, you know, Platonist, absolutist right yeah. that, that phrase doesn't sound nice but it's a it makes sense the opposite of the relative is the absolute right <laughs> someone like plato uh you know believes that there is an is an absolute right there is an absolute standard that's beyond history that's beyond time that's beyond uh changing appearances yeah. on the other side right you have no it's just all change it's all appearances it's all evolving right uh it's all differentiated uh, that sort of thing um and so uh you know plato points in the direction of you know, like there are permanent standards there are universal uh absolutes uh that exist now i think what you can sort of uh, and i think that's very appealing uh, i think it's appealing logically uh-huh. uh, if you if you get rid of all absolutes you end up in a kind of absurdity um but uh in, in addition to that i mean i think it's appealing to, to faith right um, that you know, you know, there is a sense. No, there is a, a an absolute right, um, and and that we do have uh, the ability to access it. Now, I think where you know you might sort of uh, criticize Plato um, uh, and and look for maybe some improvement um, is in the air is in the uh, area that Aristotle uh, criticizes Plato. So as you talked about before, I mean, you have this amazing just sort of burst right of philosophical work. You have Socrates, and then Socrates' great student is Plato. And then Plato's great student is Aristotle. I, I, I you know, from my own perspective, I, I, I can't help but think that that was a providential uh, sort of um, sort of uh, explosion of thought, yeah, uh, and insight uh, um, in, in in history and time. Um, and so uh, Aristotle, uh, you know, um, as deep in a lot of ways. Uh, as uh, as his master Plato, he studied with Plato for many many years. He expressed you know uh, a good deal of gratitude to to Plato, but also you know sort of thought there were some ways in which Plato needed to be improved upon. Um, and so uh, one of the way areas is in the area of experience, right? So sure. you know um, Plato tended to think of these standards, and you can kind of see why you might be drawn this way. But thought of these standards, these forms, as something that existed apart from the world of experience, right? Yeah, Outside yeah, yeah. of the world of experience, and was constituted a whole different reality. It, it's, it's kind of mind bending when you try to think about it, right? As ideas existing really in themselves, right? Uh, apart from reality, um, and that's what Plato thought. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. This world of ideas, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and, and then it's real, right? Yeah. Now, as as somebody who's uh, kind of a uh, a, a bit of a nerd. I kind of like that idea. I kind of find that attractive, but I understand how lots of other people don't. And 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 I think ultimately Aristotle is correct that we um, that we form the ideas. We 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 actually develop the ideas from experience. From experience. Right? And and I think what's really interesting there is uh, what Aristotle is really saying is that yes, if you look at if you look at the world of experience, you look at the reality as we experience it. Yeah, it does seem to be a lot of change. 
but that embedded within and underneath that change, right, and all those appearances, there are permanent universal structures, right? right? And that upon reflection, if we reflect on our experience enough, we can draw those permanent structures out of our experience. That process technically is called abstraction. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't want to get into all the details there, but that idea that we can we can find through empirical investigation, through our uh, experience, we can discover uh, permanent and universal truths in the world of experience, right? In uh, common everyday experience. This, in some ways, I think is a more um, is a, a somewhat less elitist oh, <laughs> view yeah. here, right? Because it, it appeals to the idea that you know the man the the man of experience. Uh, that common sense does actually tell us that there are some uh, permanent things. It takes some work to bring them out with rigor, and that's one of the reasons that Aristotle is the also the father of logic. Um, you know, uh, he he recognized it's not easy to identify these universal standards um, amongst uh, all of the change, but he thought it was possible. And you know, like in that for, in the first part of logic, which is all really about forming definitions and classifications and all sorts of fun things like that. Uh, that's what he's really working to try to, to try to bring out. Well, I think, I think the point that you just made is, is uh, so important for kind of even our understanding and approach today that there are these, there are these absolutes, these universals that form the foundation. They're kind of the roots that are sure. underground that provide kind of that infrastructure for kind of everything else. I mean, when you think about, you know, even just, um, where do our, where, you know, what is our common understanding of, you know, um, uh, natural rights or, you know, the dignity of the human person? Well, it comes from uh, us having a nature, uh, right. uh, you know, yeah. and that's kind of that underlining thing, you know, and, and I think, it, you know, I think you made the other point that, you know, uh, um, he really becomes the father of logic as well, you know, especially today, and I've said this before, that, you know, on the, you know, sometimes people today, on the one hand, they'll hold up that, this relativistic point of view that everything is just appearance, everything is self-defined, you get to do whatever you want. Sure. Uh, there's no real such thing as human nature. But on the other hand, they want to hold up that we are all equal. Well, <laughs> what makes us all equal? We have to have something in common, you know, and this is where you have sure. to get into, well, yep. there has to be something universal to all of us that stands mm -hmm. outside of ourselves in some way. It, it is, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, we understand it through experiences of people, but it, it has to stand almost apart from us. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Yeah, there has to stand uh, sort of maybe under us. I yeah, think it's under uh, us. one way of putting it. This is, and man, people don't like it when I say this, but uh, <laughs> I'd say that there's the that metaphysically and ontologically, there's something about us that's more fundamental than our individuality, um, <laughs> right? That is our nature. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that, you know, uh, don't hear what I'm not saying to yeah. quote someone I'm very fond of, but your individuality is very important. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> right? But it presupposes something more fundamental, namely nature. Right. right. And this is what you're talking about. And the idea of nature that really, you know, has was kind of, you know, since the middle ages taken up and developed within Catholic uh, moral theology. And I would say really uh, in really even in just philosophy more broadly um, really comes from Aristotle. Right. That is the idea that that there are there is a permanent form within each species, within each uh, creature, within each animal uh, that has its own definition, has its own uh, proper kind of uh, permanent content uh, and order. And so when I think about you know what 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 does Aristotle add here? Not only does he add the importance of experience, but he also gives us this foundation for thinking about the ethical life. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Which is that that we have a nature, and that that nature points us towards. 
uh, certain ends and so that we can uh, certain purposes, certain goals, right? Certain things are consistent with that nature and others are not. Um, and this is something that we can learn through experience. We can learn through experience uh, the famous definition that man is a rational animal. I would add to that that man is a social and rational animal. Mm -hmm. um, that one, that from our experience we can learn that that, that that's the case. That, that is the the permanent foundation of the human condition is this nature that's dynamically oriented towards rational operation and social cooperation or social relationships. Um, and that when we act contrary to that, we screw it up, right? Right. And right. that when we act in a way that's consistent with that, then we develop an excellent and virtuous life, a life of human flourishing. Um, and I, so I, I think, think that's that, one of the great things that, that that Aristotle contributes by sort of bringing the forms down into saying, okay, these forms, these permanent structures are here, and we can recognize them. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things with with ancient philosophy that, you know, again, I think a lot of people either gloss over or don't recognize is that, you know, they, they were not – they were not necessarily like maybe some of the the enlightenment philosophers were that were saying well you know here's a new way of thinking about you know this or that but the 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 reason why they were uh trying to think differently is uh they wanted this philosophy to be a way of life sure that it had that it had this real practical nature to it that you know mm -hmm. this way this way of thinking leads to a way of life and this way of life you know uh if it is true it will lead to ultimately what they, you know, virtue, happiness, you know, uh, uh, these kind of great things that we still aspire to today. Um, but right. that, but that philosophy wasn't just a, a way of thinking; that it was a way of life. That that, that it had mm -hmm. this real practical nature to it. I think that's, you know, uh, something that a lot of times is just glossed over, particularly with ancient philosophy. Sure. Yeah, I think that that's uh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that they, they had very clearly in their minds, and this is you know, Augustine talks about this in his reflections on on ancient philosophy. The philosophy is really primarily about defining the good. Yeah. Uh, that is now that's a, that's a particularly Platonic way of thinking about it. But um, I understand what he's getting at, which is that you know when ancient philosophers they I mean you should almost think about it as kind of a religious commitment. You, sure. you would join a movement. You would join a school. A school uh, was a was wasn't just a, a was not a building. A school was a movement of people. It was a community of people. You would change the way you dressed, right? If you became uh, depending on what philosophical school you adopted, um, your whole way of life would change um, uh, markedly. Uh, this probably comes out, especially I think in the uh, in the Stoic philosophers. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the one of my favorite uh, movements of, of the period. Um, you know, uh, they really run from gr ancient Greece into Rome, uh, into the Roman period. Um, but, you know, they were known for uh, having a, real, a particular way of life. They were very prized as civil servants because, right, they were so dutiful, right? Yeah. Uh, they, had a, they had a strong sense of uh, duty, uh, fulfilling one's role in society, uh, fulfilling one's role in providence. Uh, they had a strong sense. Um, one of the things that's very interesting about the Stoics um, – is you know Aristotle has a way in which he recognizes that there is a God. Yeah, I I to just call that divine noose. Uh, that God doesn't really have a lot to do with the world. Uh, he does, but pretty in a pretty remote and attenuated way. Uh, there is some real connection there, but it's pretty remote and attenuated. For the most part, what that God does is that God contemplates, right? Yeah, uh, in yeah, Aristotle's yeah. view, right? God God contemplates. I would say again, there's some room for dispute about this, but I would say that what, what God is contemplating is the forms in Aristotle's view. The Stoics actually bring God down to earth, actually, in a very interesting way. There's a lot of things that one could, again, dispute and uh, correct about the Stoic vision here. 
But they have the idea that God is with us, that God is provident. And by the time you get to the late Roman Stoics, like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, you're using very personal language about God uh, and that God is in the world and really moving the world and moving history. That brings up all sorts of interesting questions about you know, human freedom and so forth. But one of the things that inspired the Stoics is they had a strong sense of piety, right? They thought of that God brings about all things so that if, so that, you know, it's really fascinating. Marcus Aurelius, right? Emperor of Rome, right? Epictetus, a slave in Rome. Both of them considered themselves Stoics. Both of them were uh, accepted as Stoics. Epictetus, even as a slave, right? Was taught Stoicism, became a Stoic. The Stoics were famous for admitting women uh, into the Stoa, which was not something that was done by the other philosophical schools. Um, they had a strong sense that um, that that God put them in a place, right? And that it was their job to fulfill what we would call, I think, the uh, you know the ordinary duties of their state of life, <laughs> right? Uh, and that that was their primary virtue, right? And you can see how this is actually very broad and different than, say, even a said Aristotelian approach. Uh, where you know you, you could be a a good slave, you could be a good emperor, uh, you could be a good merchant, right? There were there were ways in which um, being excellent, uh, being pious, was open to anyone as long as they fulfilled the duties of their state of life. Um, a lot of the kind of stoic uh, detachment and so forth is really focused on the idea that I need to be detached from violent passions because violent passions so often get in the way of uh, duty. Um, so, anyways, I think that, you know that you, you can see that idea that interest in uh, the pursuit of a way of life really comes out uh, in the Stoics very powerfully. In addition to that, they had a strong sense of natural law. Uh, sometimes people think that the you know the natural law is drawn from Aristotle. I, I think that that's uh, most scholars do not agree with that. Right, that, yeah. the idea of natural law came out of the Stoics and out of the Roman legal tradition, um, and and the Stoics really. Uh, develop it the most. And this makes a lot of sense if you think of God as being very eminent and providential and organizing nature, right, uh -huh. in a very active way. Then they thought, well, you know, um, there are obviously natural ends. To them, it was just obvious, <laughs> right? So, but importantly, right, um, those things have the character of law because they're, because they are um, um, uh, legislated by God, right? They're designed right. by God, right? And so, uh, that's where you know they develop this idea that it's the natural law, right? I should conform uh, to nature. Uh, I should conform to my place in society. Uh, those sorts of things. Now, again, there's there's drawbacks to the Stoic approach here, but uh, I think you can see uh, I think you can see a lot of uh, positive things. They certainly weren't relativist, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, they had a very clear idea of uh, of duty. Now, let's go back to this idea that you had mentioned before. Because uh, a lot of times when we hear the word uh, contemplation, we think strictly in Christian mm -hmm. terms, uh, or oh, even, sure. you know, or even kind of uh, uh, Christian spirituality. Um, mm -hmm. But this was a huge thing for Aristotle. Oh yeah. Where, where does this? Uh, how does this fit into kind of Aristotle's thinking, and maybe you know, what is its relationship with you know wisdom and? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so Arist uh, I think contemplation is very important for Aristotle because, interesting enough, he distinguishes two species of wisdom. Uh -huh. Plato tended to think of wisdom as being one thing. Aristotle distinguished two kinds of wisdom, prudence, all right, which is kind of practical wisdom, and then, uh, and then a, a higher kind of wisdom, so that would have been phronesis, uh, a higher kind of wisdom, Sophia, right, which is um, the higher wisdom, that is the wisdom about sort of the causes of the world, the causes of reality, about God, he's very clear about that. 
that sort of thing. So that kind of, the, that kind of wisdom is more oriented towards the transcendent and the yeah, universal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the highest act within Sophia is the act of Theoreia. And this is an act of, uh, it's a simple act. It's not actually an argument. It's an act that's probably cl most closely associated with intellectual vision. There's something like it in, in Plato. <clears throat> when, uh, If you were to work through parts of the Republic, you can find something that's very similar to it. But Aristotle brings this out in an important way. It's, it's, uh, it's an it's a intellectual vision, a beholding, a consideration, an appreciation, right, that holds your attention, your intellectual attention. So I, I would, when I try to describe this to students, I put it this way, like, there are those times maybe where you're contemplating some uh, a work of art or an idea, you're thinking about it, and you kind of lose a sense of your surroundings. Yeah, right? yeah, you're, yeah. you're not really thinking about what you have to do later in the day. You're totally absorbed within the thing that you're thinking about or appreciating or contemplating. Um, that's contemplation for Aristotle, that, that sort of almost act of kind of self-transcendence where our attention, our mind is absorbed completely within its object really for its own sake, not because I want to use it to, to uh, beat an opponent or to make sure. more money, but just because I'm, 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 um, I'm absorbed by um, this object uh, that I'm considering or giving my attention to. Ah, that's so interesting, you know, because I think that's one of the, 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 the cool things with like ancient philosophy and why, sure. why we need it so much today is because any sort of religious argument, you know, the, the, the premise is denied and it's hard for us to even talk to anybody particularly if we're making a religious argument. So you have to go back to kind of what can we know by reason? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think the, 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 the ancient uh, philosophers give us that, you know, I mean, well, you know, they're not perfect in, you know, in this way They you know, even, you know, like we had talked about with Plato, they're not perfect, but you know, what they, what they do lay out is useful for us and what they do lay sure. out uh, can help us at least, you know, get to the point where we could say, well, here's what we can know by reason, right. which I think right. is so important today when religion is denied altogether that, mm -hmm. you know, um, as, as we, we try to reach modern man, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, we have to, we have to appeal to his reason. And then when you, you know, sure. again, look at the historical context of ancient philosophy where they're trying to combat relativism they're going through this uh -huh. huge uh cultural change and so they're they're, mm -hmm. they're dealing with just these shifts all the way around them and they're looking for an alternative way of life uh sure you know, i right, think that's right. i think that's something that you know while being an ancient idea uh you know mm -hmm. uh you know like augustine said ever ancient ever new um, sure you know it's this it's it's so relevant for us today yeah well and you know this 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 idea of contemplation, I think, is especially relevant because it gives us an entryway into thinking about lots of things, I think, actually. But it gives you a, a point of departure for talking about prayer, yeah. for talking about uh, worship. Like, what's the point of it? Right. The point of it isn't to refresh us. The point of it isn't to uh, give us something therapeutic. It's the point of it is not consensus or political action. The point of it, right, is um, the, the object itself, God, right, to attend to God, to think of God, uh, to appreciate God. Those sorts of things, right? Um, and uh, I think contemplation and the life of contemplation gives you a way of, of sort of thinking about that philosophically, right? Sure. Obviously, from a Christian perspective, there's more that we'd want to say than just uh, contemplation. But I think it gives you uh, a kind of an entryway, right, uh, from philosophy uh, uh, into talking about that. It's really interesting, uh, you know, the Christian tradition has taken up this uh, idea 
very significantly, right? Sure. Um, you know, Aristotle uh, sort of develops it. Uh, I mean, kind of starts with Plato. Aristotle develops it and refines it. It's taken up again by a later philosopher named Plotinus. Uh-huh. Uh, and from Plotinus, it passes into um, really the monastic tradition uh, of Western Christianity. So Plotinus is a later Platonic philosopher who was very influential on Evagrius of Pontus, who influenced John Cassian. And Cassian is the source for Benedict. So if you kind of trace down that, that, that yeah. line, right, what you really get is a lot of the of the emphasis in uh, North African and Western monastic traditions uh, on contemplation, contemplative prayer, really passes from that philosophical tradition into the monastic tradition. Uh, and of course, also passes into, you know, the the language of the church in terms of distinguishing the contemplative life and the active life. Oh, that's fascinating. And especially these big three, uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, even though they were uh, before the time of Christ, you know, that doesn't mean they were, that doesn't mean they're set apart from God's providence. Sure. And so mm-hmm. when we look at, you know, Christianity, the way that it grew, developed, was explained so much, it owes so much to ancient, these ancient philosophers. I mean, we sure. talk about, Absolutely. you know, the, the Christological uh, uh, controversies and the Trinitarian controversies, you know, so sure. much of it is owed to ancient ancient philosophy in this way. I hope that gives our listeners a lot to think about. And I, you know, one of our, one of our goals was really just to demonstrate the the need to study ancient philosophy and not just for its usefulness, but for, uh, uh, but for you know what it really uh, provides the, the our, our world, what it what it gave our world and appreciated in that way. So that'll do it for us today. I want to thank Dr. Smith, uh, not just for his not just for the podcast today, but just for his expertise and you know f- philosophy is a huge passion of his, and he loves to talk about these things and to go through these things. Uh, and so if you want to find out more. Uh, about ancient philosophy join us at catholicstudiesacademy.com you can find dr smith's class there you can also find dr bruzzichelli's class and my class as well until next time god bless